chapter three and we'll be reading the whole chapter. <clears throat> you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. So you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Heavenly Father, uh, may this morning we humbly sit under your word. Uh, may your spirit take these words and apply them to our hearts. And may they give us a clearer grasp of the gospel and a deeper joy in the Lord Jesus Christ, our champion and saviour. Amen.
Well, in our overview timeline, 20 years has now elapsed since we last met last week. Well, last week we were in Luke chapter 3, and now we're 20 years later in the era of when Galatians was written. And by this point, of course, Jesus has now come to earth to do what he uh, has come to earth and done what he came to do. Uh, He lived the perfect life as the champion of a new humanity. Uh, He's died the death he didn't deserve as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He is, of course, the lamb who goes to the slaughter without complaint as a substitute for his people. And he's been raised back to life and returned back to heaven. And therefore, he is the powerful son of man of Daniel chapter 7, to whom all power and authority has been given. Living after these events is an exciting era in which to live. Because now, you see, the strands of God's Old Testament promises are starting to come together. Ambiguity has now been replaced by clarity. Uh, Was the promised king and the suffering servant two different people? Uh, During the Old Testament era, nobody could be sure. But now we know. They were one and the same. Jesus is the suffering servant king. And God has finally sent his promised Messiah. And since his ascension, this good news about him has been spreading throughout the world. And many, of course, are responding rightly in putting their faith in the Messiah and pledging their allegiance to him. However, not surprisingly, many in the early church are having considerable difficulty grasping the full implications of what God has done through Jesus. Over the centuries before Jesus, many false perceptions have built up about what God is actually saying throughout the whole of the Old Testament. And as a result, some of the Christians are now quite confused. And it's into such a situation of muddle that the New Testament letters are written. They aim to correct the confusion and errors that are springing up. Now we have here again our diagram, our little library of the the books of the Bible, helpfully illustrated with this sort of bookshelf arrangement. And it's helpful to think of the Bible actually not so much in two sections, the Old and the New Testament, but three. So uh, firstly we have the Old Testament, which of course is effectively the promise of the Messiah, the promise of Jesus. Uh, Then we have uh, these green uh, verdant books here, which are the Gospels. And of course... They are the accounts of the life and teaching of the Messiah. And then, of course, we have everything which comes after the Gospels, which are the New Testament letters, which are basically looking back on the Gospels in the Old Testament and saying, enjoying in all the dots and saying, this is how we should now live in the light of the events that have happened as recorded in the Gospels. And so Galatians is part of this, this corpus reflecting back on the Old Testament and joining the dots with the life and teaching and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Galatians is actually one of the earliest of the New Testament letters. Uh, They think it was written in 48 AD. And Paul is writing to a group of Christians uh, who are Gentiles, and they live in the highlands of what is now modern-day Turkey, called Galatia at the time. And these Galatian believers have come to faith through Paul's ministry, but they are now being led astray by false teachers. 
Uh, not only is the book of Galatians the earliest in the New Testament letters, but it is also the hottest in tone of the New Testament letters. Uh, Paul writes it with his nostrils flaring. Uh, he's like an enraged bull. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you? You can almost sense his passion and his frustration and his concern for them. And of course, this rage springs from a pastoral heart because they are in mortal spiritual danger. Their spiritual predicament is very serious. If you read the previous two chapters of Galatians, which we didn't, of course, because we went straight to chapter 3, but in chapter 1, Paul calls what they're being taught now a perversion of the gospel. And indeed, he says, if you embrace this new teaching which is coming to you now, you're actually forsaking the gospel. In chapter 2, Paul says that they are effectively implying that God's grace is irrelevant and that Jesus has died for nothing. Uh, We actually see in chapter 2 that whatever this error is, this false teaching, it is so subtle and alluring that even the apostle Peter himself has fallen into it. And we see in chapter 2 that Paul says he had to rebuke Peter publicly. So this false teaching appears to be one of the most widespread and dangerous errors in the early church. Uh, It actually crops up in some guise or other in many of the New Testament letters. And it also remains the danger to which Bible-believing Christians are most prone today. Whatever this error is, it is something that we must be clear on and avoid and fight against at all costs. And that's why it's so important that we understand it. So what is this insidious, spiritual, cancerous error? Galatians chapter 3 gives the clearest insight into the nature of the problem. And the issue at stake is this. How must somebody respond in order to obtain what God has promised? What is required of us? And when we look at the data, we see three main aspects of the error are clear. Uh, Firstly, it's not about how to become a Christian in itself, although it can be, but also how to continue as a Christian. It's quite apparent that these Gentiles uh, in Galatia are already Christians. Uh, They have heard the gospel, uh, they've responded correctly to it, and as a result, they've been granted God's Holy Spirit, as he promised to do. So Galatians 3, verse 3, for example. Are you so foolish, after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Uh, The goal, of course, is uh, growing as a Christian. Uh, The problem is how they are going on as Christians. A second aspect of this error is this. It does not involve explicitly denying Jesus, but subtly adding to the gospel about Jesus. It's clear these Galatians fully accept what the gospel says about Jesus, but they are denying the sufficiency of what Jesus has done. They are saying, yes, we believe that about Jesus, but it's not enough. And they are therefore adding something in addition to the gospel. And thirdly then, uh, the addition to the gospel we see is actually the observance of God's law. Chapter 3, verse 2. Paul says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. 
Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human efforts? Do you see the heart of the issue? It's whether they are saved by God's work in them through his Spirit or their work and effort. Are they truly relying on salvation by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone? Or are they now opting for a hybrid of faith and works? And therefore, in chapter 3, Paul presents his case that they can only be saved by faith in Christ alone, not through their efforts to keep God's law. Salvation can only be by promise, not by performance. And Paul then goes on to present this amazing comprehensive argument by appealing to three different factors. Firstly, the personal conversion experience of the Galatian Christians. Secondly, the faith of Abraham in salvation history. And thirdly, the everyday life experience of a last will and testament. Let's look at each of those in turn. Uh, So firstly, uh, in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, Paul outlines that the Galatian Christians knew from their own experience that the Spirit came as a result of their faith in Christ, not their observance of the law. At the point of their conversion, God had poured out his Holy Spirit on them, and the Spirit had then worked miracles amongst them. His work had been very evident. Chapter 3, verse 5. Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Uh, Secondly, then, in verses 6 to 14, the case is made by appealing to salvation history. Faith is the response that God has wanted actually from the very beginning. Now, if you're with us way back in April, uh, at the start of our Overview Bible series, we looked together at Genesis chapters 12 and 15. And in, in these chapters, we saw God launching his plan to reverse the curse in the promises he made to Abraham. And when God promised to bless Abraham and his descendants, were there any conditions attached? Did Abraham have to do anything? Of course, he didn't. He just had to believe what God had promised. And therefore, quoting Genesis 15, verse 6, Paul says this in Galatians 3, verse 6. Consider Abraham, and he quotes from from Genesis 15. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Salvation by faith in God's promises is the way that it has always been. That was the case for Abraham, and it's the case for everyone since then. Those who have the faith of Abraham are the true descendants of Abraham, and they're the ones who will inherit the promises made to Abraham. Galatians 3 verse 7. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. 
You see, it's not Abraham's physical descendants who inherit the promises. It's his spiritual descendants. Uh, to put it another way, the promises are not for those who have Abraham's genes, spelled with a G, but for those who have Abraham's faith. And now at last we can make sense of that strange enigmatic statement at the end of the promises to Abraham back in Genesis 12. Remember? Because God says to Abraham, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Well, how will all the peoples of the earth who are not physical descendants of Abraham share in the promised blessings? And now we know it's through them having Abraham's faith. Galatians 3 verse 8 continues. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. And then it quotes Genesis 12 verse 3. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And thirdly, in verses 15 to 18, the case for salvation by promise and not by performance is made by using an experience of everyday life. That is the promise of an inheritance in a will. Galatians 3 verse 15. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Verse 17. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it is no longer depends on a promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. How do we become the beneficiaries of the wonderful blessings that God is promising? Uh, Both promise and law are clearly in the Old Testament. But which one comes first? Of course it is the promise. And it's likened to a person's last will and testament, that is, a human covenant. Now, I personally have yet to be bequeathed anything of great significance uh, or value in a will, uh, such as the legacy of having parents who were in full-time ministry. However, I am assured that if I were to be, whatever the will stated, once my rich aunt had passed away, that would come to me without fail. Nothing could stop it. Uh, No new conditions could be imposed. And so it is with the blessings that God has promised They are like an inheritance in a will. Once the will is put into effect, no new terms can be imposed. The fact that the law was introduced later cannot mean that the goalposts have now moved. It cannot mean that the inheritance is now only granted on the basis of performance and not promise. So the obvious question then which then follows is this, and Paul articulates it in chapter 3 verse 19. So, what then is the purpose of the law? And the answer follows immediately. It was added 
because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred has come. Why was the law added? To show us our deep need for the seed, for God's promised Messiah. You see, God's law leaves us in no doubt as to our biggest problem, the problem of sin. And the law exposes sin and shows it for what it is. Rebellion against the holy God, breach of his holy law. And therefore the law shows us that we need salvation by promise, not self-righteousness through performance. The law points us to the one to whom the promises are ultimately made, the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 3 verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Verse 19. The law was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. How does God's promised blessing come through Abraham's seed, the descendants to all the peoples of the world. The blessings come to all the people, not through his seed, plural, the Jewish nation, but his seed, singular, the Jew, Jesus. And it is Christ whose name is stated in the will. And if we want to share in his inheritance of God's blessings, we need to go to him in faith. Verse 22. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law holds us as a prisoner, but faith in Christ is the key that unlocks the wrought iron door. Verse 23. Before this face came, we were held prisoner by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. Now, when we dig around a little bit and do a bit of uh, investigative work in the letter of Galatians, uh, it seems that the Galatian Christians were not embracing all of the Old Testament law. They were just trying to add in a small part of it, in particular, uh, the command to be circumcised. Galatians 5 verse 2, which we didn't read. Of course, we're in chapter 3, but if we go ahead to Galatians 5, it says this. uh, Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. What becomes apparent is this. The Galatians, in a sense, were picking and choosing. People do not have the option to pick and choose which parts of God's law they think they want on their scorecard. Uh, To opt for the law is basically to bring the whole burden of keeping the whole of the law down on oneself. Look at the following verse in Galatians 5, verse 3. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. 
So do you see? Uh, to opt for law is basically to set ourselves up for failure. Can anybody possibly think that they can meet the requirements of the law, the whole law, 100% of the time, every moment of their entire life? It is simply impossible. And so therefore, if anybody opts even for a part of the law, they're saying, I'm going to keep the whole of the law. And in saying they're going to keep the whole of the law, basically, they're calling down on themselves a curse because they can never completely observe the whole law. Chapter 3, verse 10. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And that's why the gospel is great news. Salvation not by performance, but by promise. Salvation by faith in the one who perfectly kept the law for us. And when we put our faith in him, it's as if he puts his coat of righteousness over our sinful bodies and our sinful souls. What we see in Galatians is that actually you can't mix and match. You can't go for a hybrid of faith plus law when it comes to our standing before God. The law and faith are actually two diametrically opposed paths of salvation. One, of course, depends on God alone, that is faith and the promise, and the other on human effort, on the law. And they cannot be mixed. If it's not by faith alone, then it is by law. Chapter 3, verse 12. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. So, a few words in conclusion. The Apostle Paul, uh, he was right to rage like a bull. The tone of his letter is justifiably red hot. Because to opt for law to justify ourselves before God, even just a little law, is enough to send us to hell. Of course, God's law does, not, does have a place in the Christian life. Uh, God's law is still a light for Christians as to how they should live. But it's not a means by which they are justified before God. Uh, the Old Testament's civil and ceremonial laws, of course, have been fulfilled in Christ. They no longer apply to the New Testament believer, which is why we don't continue to do sacrifices. However, God's moral law such as the Ten Commandments, is an expression of God's moral character. And it's therefore unchanging and it's eternally applicable. And therefore, the key determining factor is our motive in keeping God's moral law. If it is to become a Christian or to remain a Christian, then effect, we are opting for salvation by law. We are justifying our standing before God based on our performance. Now here's a good litmus test question that reveals what's going on in our hearts. 
Does my performance as a Christian cause me to doubt that I will get to heaven? Does my performance as a Christian cause me to doubt that I will get to heaven? You see, if we are truly trusting in Christ alone, by faith alone, then we will know that our eternal destiny does not depend on our performance. It is secure because it is 100% rooted in Christ alone and his saving work alone. And yet, if we are trusting in our performance, our certainty of our eternal destiny will waver and we'll be saying, have I been good enough? It comes down to the motive of our hearts. So what does the correct use of God's law look like in the Christian life? Someone who is trusting in Christ alone, by faith alone, knows that they are a loved child of God. Chapter 3, verse 26. Uh, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. All of you were baptized into Christ, having clothed yourself with Christ. You see, as a son of God, we are secure in our Heavenly Father's love. We bask in the privilege of being a member of God's family. And the certainty of the inheritance is ours. Chapter 3, verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And once we know we are a loved son to whom all the inheritance is due, our motive for obeying God changes. We no longer obey to get from God because he's given us everything. Rather, we obey to give back to God. We now see obedience as an opportunity to express our gratitude. Those familiar words in that wonderful verse, Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. You see, we are free from the condemnation of the law. But rather than being a freedom to sin, it's actually a freedom to serve. Galatians 5, verse 13. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Jesus has done everything to redeem us from the curse of the law. And he did that through becoming a curse for us. And it means, therefore, that for our standing before God, we, we don't have to try and perform, and we shouldn't try and perform. We can just bask in the security that comes from knowing we are loved children of God through faith in Christ. And nothing can snatch us from the hands of our Heavenly Father. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this powerful chapter of this New Testament letter which is hot in tone, and rightly so, uh, raging against an error which ultimately can send somebody to hell. That erroneous and flawed thinking that for our standing before you, we have to in some way 
uh, adds to what Christ has done. May we hold on to the glorious gospel more clearly and fully of faith in Christ alone, being saved by grace alone. And therefore we pray that we would live with correct motives as Christians, uh, drawing on the love in our hearts for you due to all the mercy that you've showered upon us, seeking to live lives of service to you out of gratitude in our hearts, not seeking to get from you, but to give back to you out of a heart that is filled with love and appreciation. May your spirit take our hearts deeper, we pray, in the gospel, and may we respond in that emotional level, knowing that this wonderful truth is true for us through our faith in Christ. Amen.